This podcast is supported by Locum Story. If you're considering Locum tenants, you probably have a question or two, or 20. Fortunately, locumstory.com is packed with unbiased information from physicians like you. You can find Locum trends for your specialty, compare different Locum's agencies, and there's even a quiz to help you decide if Locum's is right for you, all at locumstory.com. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardio Nerds family, it's Dan Amender here. Join us again for this novel adventure as we journey through the maze of clinical practice guidelines. In this series, Decipher the Guidelines, we will take a deep dive into the 2021 ESC Cardiovascular Prevention Guidelines, focusing on similarities and differences from the American guidelines. This is a collaboration between the Cardio Nerds, the ACC Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease Section, the National Lipid Association, and the Preventive Cardiovascular Nurse Association, developed with mentorship from Dr. Eugene Yang. And remember, Cardio Nerds is a fellow-founded, independent educational platform. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Do be a nerd and spread the word on social media and help others find us by rating and reviewing the show on your favorite podcast platform. And hey, hope you are enjoying the intro music, custom mixed for Cardio Nerds by student Dr. Hirsch Elhetz, aka DJ Elhetz, medical student at USC and Cardio Nerds Academy intern of House Thomas. And with that, it's time to get nerdy. The following question refers to sections 3.3 and 3.4 of the 2021 ESC Cardiovascular Prevention Guidelines. The question is asked by student Dr. Adriana Maras, answered first by early career preventive cardiologist Dr. Deepika Gopal, and then by expert faculty Dr. Allison Bailey. Dr. Bailey is a cardiologist at Centennial Heart. She's the editor-in-chief of the American College of Cardiology's Extended Learning Excel Editorial Board and was a member of the writing group for the 2018 American Lipid Guidelines. Dr. Bailey, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Ahmed. It's always great to be on the Cardio Nerds. All right, let's move on to the question. Adriana, what do you have for us? Thank you, Ahmed. Our question goes like this. Masuya Amalone is a 70-year-old woman of Bangladeshi ethnicity with a history of anxiety and depression. She currently lives at home by herself, does not have many friends and family that live nearby, and has had a tough year emotionally after the passing of her husband. She spends most of her time in bed with low daily physical activity and has experienced more weakness and exhaustion over the past year along with loss of muscle mass. Which of the following are potential risk modifiers in this patient when considering her risk for CVD? The answer choices are A. Bangladeshi ethnicity B. Psychosocial factors. C. Frailty. D. History of anxiety and depression. Or E. All of the above. Dr. Gopal, when considering Ms. Alone's risk for CBD, what would be some of her potential risk modifiers? Thank you, Adriana. That's a great question. I think the correct answer to this is E. All of the above. They're all really important risk factors to take into consideration. As we all know, traditional 10-year cardiovascular disease risk scores do not perform adequately in all ethnicities. Therefore, multiplication of the calculated risk by the relative risk for that specific ethnic subgroup should be considered. And the ESC guidelines give this a class 2A level of evidence B indication. Several studies have shown that individuals from South Asia have higher cardiovascular rates. 
And the EFT guidelines recommend using a correction factor of 1.3 for Indians and Bangladeshi ethnicity and 1.7 for Pakistani ethnicity. And these correlation factors are actually derived from the QRISC-3 data. And in the UK, the QRISC calculator algorithm was derived and validated in 2.3 million people to estimate their cardiovascular risk in these different ethnic groups. And this is unlike other calculators because it actually accounts for the South Asian origin as an additional risk factor. The reasons for such differences remain inadequately studied at this point, as do the risks associated with other ethnic backgrounds. And of course, among the barriers to developing accurate risk prediction tools includes the wide heterogeneity amongst this population that exists. The 2019 ACCAHA guidelines also list high-risk race or ethnicity, such as South Asian ancestry, as a risk-enhancing factor. However, there's no separate pooled cohort equation or multiplication factor um, like exists in the ESE guidelines. Moving on to psychosocial stressors, uh, including loneliness and critical life events, like in this patient here, all of those are associated in a dose-response pattern with the development and progression of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease with relative risks cited anywhere between 1.2 and 2. And specifically, anxiety and depression have strong correlations with cardiovascular risk as well. And in many cases, because of the propensity for unhealthy lifestyle, increased exposure to socioeconomic stressors in that setting, uh, and or cardiometabolic side effects of some of the medications that are taken for anxiety and depression. Conversely, indicators of good mental health, such as optimism, or a strong sense of purpose are actually associated with a lower risk of cardiovascular disease. While there's no specific way proposed by the guidelines for psychosocial factors to improve risk classification, it's important to screen for you know, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease patients for these psychosocial stressors and mental disease. And clinicians should attend to somatic and emotional causes of these symptoms as well. And the ESC guidelines give a class 2A level of evidence B recommendation to assess for psychosocial stressors and a class 1 indication to assess for mental health disorders like anxiety and depression. This patient should also be formally screened for frailty. She has some of the risk factors which we see, which are slowness, weakness, loss of muscle mass, low physical activity. This is not the same as aging uh, because they include more factors like exhaustion, shrinking, making her more vulnerable to the effect of stressors. And all of these things are a risk factor for high cardiovascular and non-cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. The ability of frailty measures to improve cardiovascular disease risk prediction hasn't been formally assessed. So the guidelines don't have an exact recommendation on how to integrate it into your formal cardiovascular risk assessment, but it should at least influence your treatment plan as you build a plan with the patient. So in summary, the main takeaway is, is that these are all very important risk factors to consider. Psychosocial stresses, mental health disease, frailty, as well as the person's ethnicity. So Dr. Bailey, I'd love to hear your viewpoint on how you use these risk factors or in your calculation for overall risk in patients you see in the clinic. Thank you so much. I think these are really great points. And we all sort of recognize this when we're seeing patients, but sometimes it's hard to quantify that increased risk for things like stress from being a caretaker, stress from having a low socioeconomic situation. And so I think the guidelines did a great job of trying to highlight this. I think it's important if we, we've known this for a long time, if we look back to the inner heart study, which was a long time ago now, 
Psychosocial distress was about a third of the population attributable risk of myocardial infarction that we saw. It was only beat by lipids and smoking as higher risk factors. So this concept of stress, anxiety, depression, all of this playing into our increased risk for cardiovascular disease has been around for a while. We saw similar findings when we looked at a stroke cohort. So I think it's really important that we think about this and Importantly, figure out ways to help our patients and ourselves treat this uh, stress that we deal with on a daily basis to lower our risk. I think frailty is also gaining more and more importance when we look at our patients. Frailty is one of the strongest predictors that we look at in a TAVR population. So it makes sense when we're talking about a population where we're looking at prevention. It's also a strong predictor. You know, I frequently tell patients in clinic, if I could only do one test to tell me what is your likelihood of being alive or dead in five years, I say an exercise stress test frequently tells me that. Because not only does it give me information about how, uh, whether there's ischemia for the cardiovascular system or not, but it tells me the patient's functional status, what their mental capacity is. Are they well-functioning enough that they can stand upright, that they can walk on a treadmill? Uh, It pulls in their lung function as well as their heart function. So I think frailty is really important. And then the last thing I think we should uh, discuss just a little bit is sort of risk predictors and the shortcomings of a few of these. So if we go back and we look back in our older guidelines, our Framingham risk score was one that was commonly used. And the Framingham score is great. It's sort of where we started this risk prediction a long time ago in the United States. But we know that the population from Framingham is not representative of the population of the United States or the world. And so that one kind of... uh, gets shortcomings as our population has become more diverse. And as we look at even in in women, half of the population, it doesn't predict that well. So the pooled cohorts equation was one of the ways to address this. The pooled cohorts equation, which was what was used in the 2018 lipid guidelines for uh, ACCHA, it's the most representative algorithm for the United States, and it's derived from five prospective community-based studies, and it really represents a broad spectrum of the U.S. population. It's also not perfect, however. It looks really at hard risk of events, as as you guys already know, and it's best validated in non-Hispanic blacks and non-Hispanic whites who are between 40 and 75 years of age. So one of the things I always remind myself is, you know, the patient-clinician risk discussion is an important part of any part of prevention. And that's the way that we can individualize risk status based on the pool cohorts equation or whatever risk calculator we use. And we can highlight some of these shortcomings that we know about with our risk predictors. We know that individuals from South Asia have a higher risk, as you've already highlighted, That's probably due to multiple reasons, but we're really talking about individuals from uh, Bangladesh, India, Nepal, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka. And individuals from East Asia tend to have a slightly lower risk, and that's Japan, Korea, and China uh, largely. And so when we look at uh, risk prediction, we know, I'll know if I'm talking to an individual who's from Bangladesh, in my mind, I'm going to increase their risk slightly. It's a risk-enhancing factor, and it's probably harder to denote an exact, it's not quite a risk factor like smoking, but we know that's a higher risk individual than someone who may not be from Bangladesh with the same genes and lifestyle. And so I think that becomes important. And I'm glad that these guidelines point that out, just like the 2018 lipid guidelines did in the U.S. Thank you, Dr. Gopal and Dr. Bailey for sharing your insights. I definitely learned a lot about how together with heart healthy habits, the ESC guidelines make new recommendations regarding mental health wellness. Thank you.